Hello, everyone. It is uh, Thursday, the 16th of September, 2021. Thanks for joining us today with this on this special webcast with our uh, one of our favorite guests here, Jeff Snyder of Alhambra Partners, Investment Partners. Uh, we're going to be talking about the inflation, the Fed tapering, and what what this all means for us as traders and investors. And uh, there's a lot to cover here in the next hour. You would want to pay close attention to what Jeff is saying. Uh, the man, I think, doesn't even need to reference material to talk about this stuff. He knows it so well. I want to remind everyone that derivatives trading is not suitable for all investors. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. Let's get on camera, camera action. And I promise you all that uh, we did not kidnapped, kidnap uh, Jeff and replace him with a bearded person. This is actually the same guy we have in the picture. Uh, Jeff's uh, pandemic look is very, very hip and very, uh, very current. So Jeff, thanks for being with us and coming on today. Uh, there's a lot to cover here. Just a quick introduction of who you are for those who are not familiar with you. Uh, Jeff has been with Alhambra Partners for some time. He is the head of global research. Um, his he's just looks at the global macro pictures and a picture and and puts out a lot of content. If you don't follow Jeff on Twitter, I strongly urge you to do so. Uh, there's I, I pay very close attention to what Jeff has to say. Um, we are some of the things we're going to talk about are this uh, this uh, you know what the current picture is uh, an overview of the macro overhangs currently looming and that may be driving investors uh, to 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 make adjustments. We're going to look at inflation. Is it really transitory? We'll talk about the Fed posture. What is the Fed really focused on in terms of their policy going forward? into Q4, the pandemic effect. And uh, finally, we'll, talk, we'll ask Jeff for some scenarios into the end of the year that uh, may help us you know, figure out what we're doing with our uh, portfolios of money. So if you have questions, uh, please keep them relevant to the discussion, to these topics. And unfortunately, we can't get to everything. There's a lot to cover. But those of you who have a question that we think it would be uh, very interesting for Jeff to respond to. We'll do our best to get to it, but please don't be offended if we do not get to them. So Jeff, first thing, uh, again, head of global research at Alhambra Investment Partners. Uh, Jeff has content all over the place, his own stream. Uh, the YouTube channel for Alhambra Partners is very, very busy. It's got a lot of uh, material and uh, also as a contributor at Seeking Alpha. You can find uh, Alhambra Investment Partners at alhambrainvestments.com. Welcome aboard, Jeff. Thanks for being here. We'll start out by asking you, what is going on currently in the, um, the global macro picture? Where are we currently? Where are, well, you know, thank, first of all, thanks for having me back, Murad. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk with you and to, to, to you know, chat a little about, uh, as we were just saying before we started, lots of big stuff, right? I mean, it's, 
it's not like we have lots of little tiny things to worry about. It's it's all of the these momentous uh, potential pathways and postures, and not just in the United States, but throughout the global economy. And it's you know where do you actually begin? I think a, a good place to begin is probably overseas, simply because I think in America we're a little bit conditioned to looking locally and thinking that's representative of what the entire economy is going to look either today or going forward. And there's a little, you know, even even the domestic economy is somewhat misleading because as, you know, today retail sales report coming out, um, there's been a whole lot of, of consumer spending taking place throughout much of the first half of this year, which makes it seem like the U.S. economy in particular, and therefore the global economy, is really healthy if not in danger of becoming too healthy, if that's really a thing, you know, that's really where the inflation fears come into it, that we've done too much to fight the pandemic in terms of fiscal and monetary policy, and that it has caused too big of a response to it, which has led to, to all sorts of these, you know, pricing imbalances, CPIs in the 5%, you know, record high PPI indices and things like that. So starting from the perspective of the U.S. goods economy, you think, Maybe this really is inflationary. Maybe we've gone too far and, and things are really too good. But then you look around the rest of the world and you think, well, no, if the rest of the global economy looks nothing at all like the U.S. goods economy, really the U.S. economy doesn't look like the U.S. goods economy either. You look at the services sector and it's still underwhelming. So most of the rest of the global economy doesn't look anywhere like, or doesn't, and it has not performed anywhere like the U.S. goods economy has. In fact, the first half of this year, the first two thirds of this year, have been somewhat of a colossal dud in the respect of we're supposed to see the same type of of frenzied activity, you know, recovery type activities that we saw in the U.S. goods economy start to filter out into the rest of the world, and it really just hasn't. And the best example, and probably the the most pertinent example, is the Chinese economy. But what's really going on in China is, you know, you just have to shake your head. First of all, you have the problem of base effects. When you're looking at the Chinese economy and comparing to what, you know, various accounts are doing this year compared to last year, it looks like the U.S. goods economy. You know, retail sales in China are up, you know, almost 25% for the first half of the year, the first eight months of the year. And that sounds terrific, except the first eight months of last year, retail sales were down. But when you look at the two-year comparisons, filtering out the base effects, then you really start to see the real Chinese economy materialize and emerge, which is a very different story. For example, retail sales in August, which were which were very disappointing, as the Chinese announced just a couple of days ago, they were up only two and a half percent over last year, and only three percent total over two years ago. Now, before 2019 retail sales in any single year had never been less than 7%, or only one month back in 2003, it had only been less than 7%. Now we're seeing a two-year return that's that's not even 3%. So the Chinese economy, and it's not just retail sales, it's fixed asset investment, it's industrial production, it's everything else, including nominal and real GDP, which says the Chinese economy has not recovered. And more more, more than that, it's the peak in the recovery largely goes back to late last year. So yes, for much of this year, the Chinese system has been sort of going along the lines of being a colossal dud. And I think what most people think is, well, you know, that's Delta COVID, it's renewed waves of pandemic restrictions. It's a, you know, supply bottlenecks, port shutdowns and all these other things. But when you put all these pieces together, what you really see is number one, the Chinese economy and the rest of the overseas economy is in really rough shape to begin with. And number two, 
you know, popular opinion says that the Communist Party, Xi Jinping and the PBOC and every other economic authority in, in communist China is going to come riding to the rescue because they prioritize growth and economic growth is one of the things the CCP has been known for. And that just hasn't been the case for not just this year, but several years. And so you look at um, something like official state sector fixed asset investment, and it's very clear that the Chinese authorities are telling you, basically saying in, in form of speeches, as well as in terms of what they're actually doing as, as, as far as fiscal stimulus is concerned, they're not going to change anything. They're accepting that this is the way things are, and that the way things are may be that the 2020 recession globally may have actually led to a downshift in global growth potential beyond the downshift in global growth potential that we had experienced before 2020. So we're actually dealing with a potentially a double shot of what is essentially long-run deflationary conditions. And of course, the Chinese Communist Party, along with just their economic policy, has been doing other things in the political space to, that go along the lines of, hey, economic growth since last year may be even further impaired. And again, that, that's, that's a very different position than I think most people are, are, have accepted from their, their perceptions of what's going on in the U.S. consumer goods spending category. So uh, in that situation, I mean, deflation, you say deflation and you immediately think of Japan. Um, what does the Chinese government do to, uh, to counter that uh, what, without, I mean, do they just go and flood the market like they did with the yen or uh, what, like the Japanese did with the yen? Or what's, what's, the, what's the remedy for that? Well, there, that's the thing. The Chinese government isn't seeking a remedy for it. They're seeking to manage the conditions of it. In other words, the, the monetary policy, for example, they've, 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 um, they've come up with what they call no sharp turns policy, which is essentially a neutral monetary stance given this low level of growth which means they're not going to flood the, the world with, uh, flood the Chinese system with liquidity because that would violate the no sharp turns policy and that would violate what the Chinese communists feel is their long run potential, which is not like what it was before. And so if the PBOC would just suddenly turn ultra loose, for example, that would, that would go contrary to what is now called common prosperity or dual circulation or whatever, whatever you know, terminology the, the government comes up with, which all describe the same thing that the Chinese are willing to accept lower levels of economic growth because in some ways they've been preparing for it for several years, going back to the 19th Party Congress and even before then, they have been saying, look, there's, there's problems in the global economy and then we just went through a, a deeper recession in 2020 that's probably gonna cause an enormous amount of harm on top of it. So the Chinese are not going to try to flood the world and, and reflate the, everyone out of it because they realize there's really not much point in doing so because in the process of an ultra loose monetary policy in their perception, what they're saying is that that's only gonna create uh, imbalances and bubbles and things like that. They're more willing to tolerate and try to manage what we're seeing with Evergrande, for example, which is that, look, there's a lot of, lot of, uh, a, a lot of leftover and lingering too much monetary stimulus from a decade ago that still needs to be worked through and expunged before we even think about any of those other things. So monetary policy in particular, but as well as fiscal policy, if you look at, again, fixed asset investment through state-owned uh, companies, what you're seeing is that the Chinese government is trying to manage the, the Chinese economy and, and really everything else based on their perception of a low, much lower baseline growth potential going forward.
Hmm, that makes sense. Okay, so the next thing, uh, the next big overhang that's been talked about is input prices, right? This leads to inflation potentially, and whether it's transitory or not is a is subject to uh, that we would want a subject that we want to cover in the next slide. But um, recently, you know, you look at uh, you know this the 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 higher prices of commodities, the higher prices. Uh, of various inputs, including aluminum, steel, um, lumber, all these things, uh, along with uh, the, the constraint on supply in addition to strong demand uh, from, you know, from people having to stay at home and build out their gym at home and all that crazy stuff from last year. Uh, overall commodity prices, um, Shipping prices. My father-in-law has a his company has a couple manufacturing plants in China. They used to pay, I think, twenty-eight hundred dollars a container for their goods being shipped to uh, the U.S. Uh, currently, the going price is twenty-one thousand dollars per forty-foot um, container or sixty-foot container. I don't know which. That's an insane cost in terms of transportation and logistics where do you see that kind of taking place and how does that impact the next thing we're going to talk about which is inflation yeah and that's really the issue right is this stuff inflationary what do we mean by inflationary we can get to that in a minute i think when we're talking when we're thinking about commodities for example general commodities yeah there are a few like aluminum that have continued to have gone higher but you know you mentioned lumber lumber was one that people talked about a lot earlier in this year because there was every reason to talk about, you know, the spot lumber price went from, you know, something like a couple hundred dollars for, uh, per, per uh, thousand feet to, what was it, 1700 at the 1750 peak? 1750 or something. Yeah, it was something ridiculous long. where it was, you know, you, you, you know, you, you couldn't build a deck anymore because it would cost as much as a house. And, uh, but, you know, that was sort of a leading indicator. At least it was, it was, we were, you know, we heard over and over that lumber was a leading indicator, copper the same way. Uh, and then all of a sudden you don't hear about you don't hear much about lumber anymore because the spot price has absolutely collapsed and it collapsed simply because a little bit of additional supply started to leak into the marketplace and it was interesting it just staying with lumber how lumber prices detached from uh, raw raw um, raw uh, cut lumber prices detached from raw lumber prices which meant that the issue wasn't that there wasn't enough you know actual raw material that there was not there was a shortage of mills being able to cut the lumber down to whatever needed to be used in the end marketplace, which was a sign of, again, a supply problem, a supply bottleneck. And again, that goes back to what mainly the US federal government had done late last year and early part of this year, which was feed into this consumer frenzy that caused this imbalance because supply was relatively inelastic. In fact, it was in some industries like lumber, very inelastic, which meant that demand came back faster than supply was able to keep up. And that just caused this crazy, crazy change in prices. And that was true, especially in the supply chain, as you talk about, you know, shipping and container shipping and things like that. Um, yeah, absolutely. There was a logistical nightmare because there is a shortage of drivers. There's a shortage of truck chassis in the United States. There was problems at the West Coast ports. The railroads have cars all over. I mean, it's, it's basically a huge mess in the uh, supply chain up and down. And that's really... That's before we even account for the fact that there's, you know, a short, a real shortage of certain materials that cause prices to go crazy. But that isn't the same as inflation. And we're starting to see the other side of that, which, you know, general commodities, 
when you average them together, the you know the World Bank pink sheet indexes, for example, that peaked way back in May. So we've had a couple months here where general commodities are sideways, and some of the leading commodities are sharply lower, like copper, lumber, and some others. So what we're seeing is that look, you know, as as frenzied and as crazy as things got early in, in the early part of the year. What that really was, was the, essentially a bottleneck, supply inelasticity combined with artificial demand that created a one-time effect that, you know, it's gonna take some while, some, some, some time longer to work through all of these problems. By and large, they're starting to happen. We're already seeing the uh, price pressure start to come off. And in fact, you know, just last week, the big French shipper, CMA CGM said, we're freezing freight, late, freight rates across our entire product line until February of 2022. Now, why would they do that if they're not seeing softening demand, some kind of raise in supply? They're, they're, they're not going to leave that kind of price profit on the table for the goodness of their heart. They're essentially starting to think, see things begin to normalize. And what they're basically admitting today in September is that, look, the other side of this thing is starting to appear. We're starting to see some of these things, the kinks in the supply chain get worked out, and therefore prices are going to start to react to an increase in supply, at least some better elasticity, as well as, as, I just, as we just talked about before, there are serious questions about what demand is gonna look like, especially in the United States, once we get past all those Uncle, Sam, Uncle Sam's checks being deposited in people's accounts. The further and further we get away from the helicopter drops earlier in this year, you know, what are, what is the U.S. economy going to look like? Is it going to look look more like the rest of the economy, rest of the global economy? And if so, what would that mean for all of these commodity prices, where they're sort of priced for the rest of the world to join the U.S. in what looks like a recovery, rather than the other way around, where the U.S. goods economy starts to cool off substantially, starts to look like the Chinese economy? Okay, so got it. So that side of it is probably transitory, right? I'm not sure why they would freeze their prices rather than let them float and fall when the time comes for them to fall. But, you know, that's a separate kind of micro discussion. So, you know, the, the, the increase in these input prices and the, and the artificially high demand and so on may not be the core of inflation. Just before we get into the inflation discussion, what is the largest input into the rise or fall of inflation? Well, the largest input is always labor. And so it's, not, you know, we think about commodities inflation. Commodities are supposed to be reflecting in one sense, not just the physical supply and demand, but also the monetary component, which gets into the labor market too, which is, you know, as we've heard ever since March of last year, the Fed is printing money. Well, you know, that's that's a common perception and it's a common misperception. And I think that some people are reading into these rising commodity prices as if that's the money printing coming home to roost, that com that investors are looking at real assets to shield themselves for the, from the looming monetary inflation, which takes its cues from what's going on in the commodity sector and then gets transferred through businesses into the into the labor market and the wage sector. And I think that's why, you know, if you start to look at some of these supply factors and, and piece these together with lumber and copper and things that are starting to fall off, the general commodity index that's not as not as boiling as hot as it was earlier in this year. And then you look at the labor market data, especially the labor force participation rate, which has been stubbornly the same for over for a year now. 
what that says is that, yeah, we had this major frenzy, this major imbalance, supply and elasticity earlier, or late, late 2020, early part of this year. But going forward, it may not, it may not last that long at all. It may be that the labor market, the U.S. economy looks a hell of a lot more like the rest of the global economy once you get past the federal government's influence, not the Federal Reserve, the federal government's influence, because QE isn't really money printing. QE is just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. Therefore, what's driving commodities, especially now up and then maybe now down again, are these temporary transitory factors combined with the recalcitrant, the reluctance of the labor market to actually re rebound in the way that it should, if you think this was an inflationary recovery type of trend, you, you see all of these signals combined that are saying that it was a one-time, one-off, temporary, transitory, ridiculously big and large, but it was a, a, essentially a supply shock. What would make it not what would you need to see in the numbers to start to go, wait a minute, maybe this is not transitory. Maybe this is, maybe we will remain, you know, remain at 4% or floor out at 4%. What, what would you need to see or what have we seen in the past that causes it to remain above the 2% target? Well, my, uh, inflation is in, real inflation, and to define our terms here, inflation is not just a temporary uh, burst of consumer prices. It's a sustained uh, incidence of consumer price rises and acceleration over a prolonged period of time. And the way you get to prolonged, sustained consumer inflation, therefore, reg, you know, actual inflation, is through you know the old adage: too much money chasing too few goods. And that's really, and I think that's the piece that most people get wrong because they think, well, yes, too much money. The Federal Reserve has been printing trillions of dollars and therefore it's worth, we're seeing it in the CPI. One follows the other. And the problem is that the Federal Reserve does not actually print money. It creates bank reserves, which are not useful form of money. The actual monetary policy is something very different. So if you're looking at commodity prices and the CPI and trying to connect that to a monetary background, which will mean that the CPIs continue on and on and on months and months and months into the future, years and years and years of the future, like the 1970s, where's the monetary component for it? It's not going to be the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve doesn't actually do money. Therefore, it has to be the banking system because the banking system is the one that actually does money. And all the signals from the banking system are unfortunately for uh, you know commodity investors, deflationary, not inflationary. And the primary one is just nominal treasury yields. And not just treasuries, but nominal bond yields around the rest of the world, which say growth and inflation expectations aren't just low, they're actually pitifully low. And that's not the type of environment, real yields in particular, that's not the type of environment in which you're gonna see sustained inflation because the banking system is telling you there is no money for it. And so whatever happened in the CPIs and commodity prices, starting in late last year and early part of this year, they're going to be temporary transitory because the economic and monetary background, the baseline underneath all of these things remains the same, if not worse off than it was before 2020. That's incredible because it's just like mind blowing because it's, you know, it's contrary to what you hear. It's contrary to everything you see on the financial media, CNBC, Bloomberg, whatever it is. It's contrary from every uh, mainstream assessment. But yet it's the, it's the only one that explains the facts and has explained the facts over the last you know, 15 years and even longer than that. 
is essentially that the monetary system is very different than what it says in the text. But we're all taught, you know, don't fight the Fed. The Fed is a central bank. The Fed does money printing. Therefore, don't ask any questions. Yet, you know, Japan, the perfect example, they've been doing QEs for 20 years. They've been doing QQE, which was a ridiculous amount of QE for the last eight plus years, no inflation. How can it be money printing if there's no inflation? Inflation is, again, a monetary phenomenon. And we've been, you know, the projections and we've, hear, we've heard about inflation in the United States going back to the very first QE, but especially in the wake of the second QE in 2010. Inflation, the dollar's going to crash, all of these things, they never happen because the Fed doesn't print money, it prints bank reserves. And that's not a trivial distinction. It's not a technical distinction. It's everything. And so when you realize the Fed doesn't actually do money, and you start to look at the monetary system very differently, then you can piece together not just the history of the last 15 years, but understand better what's going on right now, including why, for example, commodity prices are starting to come down, why inflation indices themselves are starting to recede and look every bit as transitory as has been predicted in these same markets. Okay, so uh, I know we're stalled here and, and uh, I would like to move on, but I've got to then ask you, um, what does that look for the housing market? The biggest expense and investment for most people in the economy is the cost of their house. You know, we see these housing prices that are just crazy here in Chicago and pretty much everywhere, Toronto, uh, Europe, and so on. How How is that going to shake out? Setting aside the fact that the Fed just it sounds like the Fed just writes a number in a, in a ledger and says, okay, we're putting out $1.2 trillion, but unless that money's moving through the, the, the banking system and it's being deployed in the economy, it doesn't really mean anything is what you're saying. And in addition to that, you're saying that for real inflation, you need that money to make it into the economy, and then you need it to buy stuff that's becoming less and less and less available, and therefore prices just stay up uh, because there's just no supply and everybody wants that same thing, like lumber or whatever. And so what does that mean for the housing market? Uh, a lot of people cannot afford to buy a house and a lot of people can't afford to buy to pay for rent as an individual who's a professional getting paid, you know, 50 grand a year to start out of college. Rent is almost out of reach, you know. How does that play out? Well, you know, real estate like stocks, for example, the two two biggest investment uh, classes for most retail investors, I mean, those things look like the Fed is printing money. They act like the Fed is printing money, which is entirely the point. The Fed, as you just said, Murad, you know, the Fed creates bank reserves. They don't go any farther than the banking system. The banking system has done nothing with them. And so how do we explain what's going on in the housing market? How do we explain what's going on in Wall Street? And the answer is that the Fed creates a psychological effect where because people believe that it's printing money, they act, in this, they act on that impulse, especially people in the financial services industries, fund managers and the like, who are only too willing to buy these assets and continue the, the trend of rising prices because it benefits them as well as their clients. And so the Fed is creating this, this essentially self-reinforcing psychological trick where people are buying houses because they think the Fed is flooding the world with money, when in fact that's not really the case. And so like in commodity prices, what you would expect is that frenzy in housing to be transitory too. And we've already seen that kind of happen. Uh, new home sales and even existing home sales have cooled off significantly 
since the peak. And of course, there are other factors in real estate going on as well. You know, there's there's a mass migration. Uh, you know, I'm in South Florida, and you know, you can sell a house here for cash, sight unseen, to somebody in New York City in you know the day after you put your house up for sale, for example. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with the Fed, and has very little to do with the Fed. And there are definitely regional pockets and non-monetary pockets of you know other things going on that are driving this the, the housing market upward into you know what what were pretty much insane levels you know pre you know to middle 2000s housing bubble type territory but that's not money printing that's people reacting to the idea that money has been printed and eventually once that starts to wear off then you're into okay now what what if the you know the economic fundamentals even for just the you know real estate market aren't supportive of that continuing trend because there isn't the money there it's just simply people believing there was and that's that's where it can get into trouble again it's like uh, when traders trade on a rumor and then the number comes out, buy the rumor, sell the fact kind of thing. So that's, the fact- Yeah, that's buy the house and then you know what happens when the New Yorker stops coming or something, you know, because right. it, it's not a monetary event. Right, so the Fed, you've talked a lot about the Fed, you've covered a lot of the, the, the material that uh, we were gonna discuss with the Fed already, but there's yeah, a lot, there's, there are a lot of events next yeah. week. Yeah, well, there are a lot of events next week involving central banks and so on. Can you give us your kind of expert uh, perspective on what the Fed is looking at and, you know, taper, no taper? What's what's likely to um, play out here into Q3 with this? Well, what the Fed is looking at, they're looking at exactly what I just said, talking about the CPIs of earlier this year and, and you know, the the latest ones. They continue to to agree with my position, actually, which is that it is transitory, that what we saw earlier in 2021 was the supply inelasticity combined with artificial demand, creating price pressures that were not going to last. That is still their position right now. Now, where they've changed slightly is for the Fed, inflation is more a matter of the Phillips curve, which is maximum employment leading to cost pressures in the labor market. And as you know, the payroll reports over the summer before this last one in August had been you know, pretty big and pretty large and the unemployment rate had dropped quite a bit over a couple months. What they're saying now is that, look, the labor market to them appears to be strengthening a little bit faster than they anticipated. And so now they have to think about 2022 as possibly getting into that range of maximum employment, which is to them and their models inflationary. So they're not, they're, they're not acting or reacting to the CPIs earlier this year, they're, they're extrapolating labor market trends over the last couple of months into next year and thinking that next year could then potentially be inflationary if we hit maximum employment, which is the same exact mistake that they've been making over and over again, year after year after year. So I expect next week that the Fed, I mean, Jay Powell at Jackson Hole last month already said, look, we're gonna taper. It's just a matter of when it's gonna happen and when it's going to end. And the market basically shrugged and said, we don't care if you're going to taper. I'm talking about the bond market. Um, and the bond market basically said, we don't care if you're going to taper because we don't agree with you. We think that you're going to taper because you think the economy is getting better. We don't think the economy is getting better. And by, by the time we get to 2022, you're either going to stop tapering because you're going to realize we're right, or you know, you're just never going to get into any rate hikes to begin with. And that, you're, that the Fed actually tapering, whether it does or not, doesn't actually matter because what the Fed does is, is essentially project its confidence in its own uh, uh, 
its own forecast, economic inflation forecast. So those have shifted slightly in the second part of the second part of this year based on recent labor market numbers. Don't know if the uh, August payroll report will cause them to maybe take a step back and think rethink things because the household survey, you know, the, the unemployment rate fell a little bit further. It's down to 5.2%, which is kind of in their range. It certainly puts next year in range of a much even lower unemployment rate, which for the Federal Reserve is essentially all they really look at when it comes to these types of monetary policies, even though the unemployment rate time and time again steers them wrong. I mean, we don't have to go back a couple of years to 2018 for Jay Powell to make the same mistakes he made, he's making now, which was back then it was rate hikes because he saw the unemployment rate drop and that was going to lead to an inflationary future when the bond market said, no, nope, not happening. And of course, what happened in 2019 was Jay conceded that the bond market was right all along without ever admitting to that, to what's going on. So that's why when we look at you know inflation as a monetary phenomenon, we pay attention to what the banks are doing in the bond market because that tells us what they're thinking about in terms of money and real economic fundamentals. And they, that's why bond yields time and time again seem to get it more right than wrong, certainly a hell of a lot more right than the Federal Reserve is. So the Federal Reserve is going to taper at some point this year, and we really shouldn't care all that much. But because everybody is conditioned to believe that we should care, it's going to be you know endless, countless numbers of news stories about taper and what it's supposed to mean. We're supposed to worship at the altar of the Federal Reserve and all that. It's going to make a difference in certain places like real estate, perhaps, and maybe even the stock market, which is conditioned to believe the Federal Reserve is the end-all, be-all of all finance. When, in fact, in the real economy, underlying fundamentals, this is all just you know a bunch of a, a bunch of smoke and mirrors and games. So, in your opinion, having looked at this a long time, what you're saying is the Fed's charter should be changed from a dual mandate to, hey, just threaten them always just threaten you're not going to do don't touch the button you're just going to threaten them of what could happen this is kind of like the parent who's like i'm going to tell your don't mom when she comes it. home yeah, i'm going to pull the car over i'm going <laughs> to tell your dad when he comes home and yep. never actually never actually executing on that punishment but that's very interesting yeah and you don't want to do that right because as soon as you do you reveal your weakness you reveal the fact that you don't do it i mean look that's really what you know when you go back and look at the 2008 crisis that's really all it was you had a global dollar shortage a monetary problem and you know we heard nothing from you know for decades before then that the fed was you know the greenspan put that the fed would rescue the system if it needed to well where the hell were they you know the the the, the 2008 crisis didn't start in 2008 it started in 2006 and for two years, the Fed fumbled about proving that it didn't do what it said it what it said it could do all along. In fact, that's really the biggest danger for central banks and central bankers is essentially if you have to act, then you're going to end up proving the fact that you're that you're there's really nothing behind monetary policy except psychology. Yeah, and and it took uh, Paulson, who was then the Secretary of the Treasury, pulling in the major banks and saying we're going to ram this money down your your throats and you're going to put it out there. Because we need and to. They still didn't. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. It's kind of funny to look back and see it for what it is, and you're in the middle of it, kind of looking at, looking at uh, the the chairman of the Fed and the Fed board and the committee, and as well as the secretary of the Treasury as like the saviors. When actually, 
the economy kind of operates without these people, you know? Yeah, it's, um, that's, I think we're too conditioned to believe, you know, people blame Joe Biden or Donald Trump for inflation, for example. It's, how do the two connect? I mean, it's, you know, the, it, we're, we're conditioned to believe that there is centralized control to all of these things. And the Federal Reserve has made it its life and its business to, to keep up that, that type of fairy tale because that's really what it does. But you're right, you know, when you go back to, you know, living through the financial crisis, quantitative easing, for example, even though it had failed spectacularly in Japan about seven years before then, you know, when things are going wrong all over the place and the Fed says, I'm going to do quantitative easing, you know, a lot of people thought, well, okay, I don't really know what it is. I know that's something about it in Japan, but let's give these guys a chance. Maybe they, maybe they know what they're doing. But when you keep doing QE over and over and over again, by my unofficial account, the Japanese are on QE 23, you know, at some point <laughs> you have to stop and say, what are they really doing here? And why is it that they keep telling us it's the most powerful monetary policy money printing ever conceived, yet I mean, within a year or so, they're like, where's the inflation? What happened? Where's the growth? It was supposed to lead to all of these things and it never happens. In fact, with QE, all of the academic studies conducted by the central bankers themselves tell you it doesn't work. It especially doesn't work in the in the period in the uh, in the factor of bond prices and bond yields. The bond market controls yields, not the Federal Reserve. And that's you know that's one of the things I hear all the time this year as inflate as the CPIs you know came one after another uh, you know five percent and whatever you know record PPIs. I'd say well bond yields are saying this is temporary, and they'd say when people would say no no no. That's just the Fed buying bonds. And I keep saying, no, that's not. You can pull up a chart of any any bond, every bond yield you want and match it with what, whatever central banks are doing uh, QEs. What you find off, more often than not is bond yields behave contrary to how they're supposed to, including the 2013 taper episode. Yes, there was a taper tantrum starting in May 2013, but it only lasted a couple of months because the bond market was saying, we agreed with Ben Bernanke, who was tapering because the unemployment rate was coming down. And the bond market saw that, yeah, maybe there was a little bit more growth and in inflation potential for 2014 before only a couple months later, rethinking that whole posture. And by the time the Fed actually started tapering, which meant buying fewer bonds, bond prices throughout 2014 in the US, US Treasury prices went up, not down, even though the Fed was buying less of them. And then when the Fed tapered completely at the end of 2014, Bond prices went down even, or bond prices went up even further, which meant yields went even lower. So it's not like the Fed controls interest rates either. In fact, that's so when we look at you know the bond market, what these signals are, especially real yields, what are we really, what is the, what is the market really telling us? And it's not the same thing at all. It's interesting how uh, I've been conditioned. I've been trading for about 21 years, and I've been conditioned to just sit during the FOMC release and really trade that number, or at least attempt to understand what that number is doing and the effect it has on the instruments that I trade, which are mainly, um, you know, S&P, uh, the S&P futures and, and other indices and, and crude oil and things like that. And you're kind of making a case for, yeah, the market moves, we see volatility, but look at how temporary it is and how the market resumes from where it is a concept that I call returning to the scene of the crime. It returns to where it is and it just continues in its, on its merry way. The auction just continues in the products that I trade. Now, let's just go to further that point. That's really what we're doing as investors though. Cause you know, 
if to me the reality is the Fed is a toothless non-monetary organization, really a, a domestic bank regular, not a central bank, that's that that's I think is the real case. But everybody else believes that the Fed is all powerful. That's how markets are going to move, right? Because markets are made up of people who believe the things that maybe aren't real, and maybe markets aren't as efficient and uh, you know uh, ultra effective as we might might like to think that they are. And so we have to be careful of okay, we think reality is this, and we're pretty sure reality is this. But in stocks, for example, stocks do you know in a lot of cases they pay attention to the Federal Reserve because everybody in the stock market believes the Federal Reserve prints money and all those bank reserves end up on the New York Stock Exchange. So you have to be careful about what is everybody else doing, whether they're right or wrong. They're the That's what the market is. If everybody's betting the Fed is still powerful in at least some asset classes, then you do have to pay attention to that. So that actually takes us to the last slide that we have that I wanna make sure we have time for, but just temporarily, I want to talk about the pandemic effect and we already know the story what it has done you know eric's been talking about warning everybody before the numbers came out before march of 2020 how devastating this could be and he's been right on point with uh, macro voices uh the podcast that you that i actually first got exposed to you on but here we are uh in uh, middle of september of 2021 what is the pandemic effect going forward? Because we hear, you know, I read the Wall Street Journal every morning as part of my prep. I probably shouldn't, but but it constantly talks about this big spike in China of, uh, of uh, the Delta virus. And it kind of causes you to think, oh man, maybe I should be defensive. Um, what is your perception of what the pandemic effect will be going forward into the end of the year? I think in reality, the pandemic effect has diminished greatly and it will continue to diminish over time. But again, like, you know, commentary about the Federal Reserve, we're going to be told it's a lot bigger than it was. Again, think about three years ago. What happened to the economy? You know, globally synchronized growth in 2017 sort of, you know, dissipated and then disappointed significantly. And the reasons that were put forward for why that was, people said it was trade wars, for example. Well, how does trade wars knock the entire global economy into recession by 2019? They don't. But when you don't have, when you think about the Fed and QE and money printing and all that stuff, you don't have an, you don't have a way to explain what happened. And so trade wars became essentially the boogeyman for 2018 failing and disappointing and in, in, in leading not leading to the inflationary pressures that everybody said were ironclad surefire guarantees. So it had to have been trade wars, and that really wasn't the case. I think we're going to see something similar going forward where this year already to a, especially the last couple months the delta virus of the uh, of covid has been blamed for pretty much anything and everything it's the new boogeyman it's the new trade wars is that the pandemic and restrictions in localized areas are the reason we're seeing all of this weakness and of course it doesn't matter that the weakness predated the delta virus it doesn't matter that bond yields turned out of reflation back in late february in mid-March in U.S. Treasuries, and uh, you know, long before anybody was worried about Delta and COVID and everything else, it's the fact that you know, in the mainstream, monetary and fiscal policies are always effective. The economy is always going to be doing well, and so all the times that it doesn't do well, we're always going to be reaching for something that sounds non-monetary, non-macro, or benign. So 2018, it was trade wars. 
2021 and 2022, we're going to hear about Delta and then Lambda and Mu and all these other uh, coronavirus variants that aren't really having uh, actual real effects, real impacts, as much as they are just being offered as excuses from people who don't really understand what's going on on the ground, which is the fact that global economic potential has diminished so badly and then got hit hard in 2020 by a recession that was really severe across most of the rest of the world. And so is it really likely that we were going to emerge from that big of an event unscathed without taking a lot of economic, permanent long-run economic damage? I mean, the chances of that happening were so exceedingly small to begin with, but to maintain the idea of a recovery, an inflationary recovery, we have to come up with excuses to explain why well, the inflationary recovery isn't happening right now, but it will happen tomorrow. Well, you know, the North Koreans are launching te uh, test test launching missiles, and that could be that could be the the story. And I think it was the story in like it uh, was in 20... January 2018. Oddly 2018, enough, that was, yeah. that was one of the things. You know, Trump was going to start a nuclear war, and that was to explain why stocks had sold off at the end of January, and you know, inflation expectations were were keeping up in Germany, or you know, all the other things. You know, there's always something going on that that. Uh, that you can point to and say, oh, this must be the reason why this, you know, the robust inflationary breakout we keep predicting hasn't happened yet. And so the inflation will be tomorrow or, you know, the recovery will be tomorrow once the Delta COVID wave uh, starts to decline. And when you look around, I mean, already the Delta COVID wave has already started to decline in many places. And yet, again, we're not seeing the sort of ebullient, you know, optimism throughout much of the, most of these markets, including commodity markets. So I'm going to um, say that you're someone who is hovering above um, at 15,000 feet looking down. I'm the trader who's looking through a microscope and uh, because I'm short-term uh, day trading. But if the economy's looking so bad, it's not really um, coming back as robustly as we as we think or we're being told, why is it that the product that I trade the most, the S&P 500 futures, can't let go of all-time highs? Is it that, and if there's not all that much money flow that's coming in to support this, because you know the Fed is just telling us it's doing all this stuff and, and um, you know, the US government's telling us it's doing stuff, but it's not really translating into money in uh, in uh, coming into the economy why is why are these indices uh, the nasdaq the russell the dow the the s p why are they not letting go of these all-time highs in your opinion it's john mater king's beauty contest essentially you know look the fed isn't pumping money into these markets the fund managers are and professional financial services managers are because they believe in the fed so we just said if everybody believes the Fed is doing what the, what everybody believes the Fed is doing, they're going to act in that way. And really, that's the entire point of monetary policy and expectations management is to get people to act in ways that aren't aren't or are contrary to reality. And that in the one place that there's less frictions for that to take place and then continue over and over again is the stock market. And the stock market is completely detached from reality. You know, we fool ourselves into believing that valuations are important and that earnings mean something, but the truth is. You know, as, again, as Keen says, you know, the market can stay insane longer than you can stay solvent because it's essentially a beauty contest. And so, so long as everybody that's operating the market believes that the Fed has got, you know, has made investing in stocks bulletproof, 
they're going to act as if investing in stocks are bulletproof regardless of the fundamental conditions on the ground. I mean, this has been, the market has done for the last decade or so. It has ignored the economic fundamentals in spots where it can, 2017 being the most perfect example, where growth disappointed, yet stocks were almost vertical during that time period yes, too. I and then 2020, that. you know, the back half of 2020, you know, stocks went vertical, even though it looks like, you know, apart from Uncle Sam's injections of treasury cash into the temporary short run economy, that maybe things are a little bit uglier, not just compared to what we thought they would be, but compared to before we started this mess in, with COVID in 2020. But so long as, you know, financial services industries invested in this, this Greenspan put myth, that's the way stocks are going to behave. And it's really until fund managers and professional financial services managers are forced into some form of reality, usually when liquidity wrong gets yanked out from underneath them, as in March of 2020, that's the only time they're forced to, to deal with reality. And so because the stock market is so far detached from the real things and real economy, it is the least amount of friction fighting against the against the against uh, what the Fed actually is. And so the Fed looms large on Wall Street even though it matters nothing in the, on Main Street. Yeah, so it's like the dot-com bubble all, all over again, which means I probably should sell a whole bunch of Tesla calls and buy a whole bunch of Tesla puts. But, <laughs> but yeah, but you're right, you know, I'm talking about like longer of the beauty contest stuff. And that's, you know, in some ways we're talking a different language than what you do as a short-term trader. And so, you know, maybe you keep that in the back of your mind as the, the background and risks and things that go that, 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 like that. but realizing that this can go on for a very long time, just as long as you're careful about what happens when it starts to reverse or the potential for it to reverse. Right, so it's, it goes back to the old question, you know, what's a dollar worth to you? It's worth something, it's worth something different to different people because the value of a dollar is um, whatever you make of it because the cost of that dollar, the cotton and ink and so on is not that much. So it's just kind of this, that's why they call it fiat, right? So debt ceiling, and actually, if we can keep this brief, it would be great because I want to get into scenarios. I don't want you to leave here without giving us some ideas of scenarios. And I love that you said these fund managers keep pumping things up because it's all detached and and uh, and and you may be out of a job after this webinar <laughs> because you you are with uh, Alhambra Investment Partners, and that's where the next slide leads us to. But for now, the debt ceiling is this something that is this the same thing that we see every year with the battle in Congress about the debt ceiling? And at the end of the day, it doesn't mean anything, and we just chug along as we do normally. What is your opinion of this year's debt ceiling fight? Yeah, just to keep it brief and not go through everything. Look, we've been through this before. The debt ceiling tends not to be a huge event. It does contribute negatively because we see these debt ceiling dramas play out during these periods where inflation dies off and the next the deflationary wave starts to build up. That doesn't mean it's a cause of the transition from one to the other, but it does contribute negatively because it creates all sorts of uh, issues in in the internal plumbing, let's say, for example, treasury bill markets, you know, we're seeing some interesting things take place in bill yields and bill prices, which are, you know, we don't need to get into here. The, the, by and large, what we're saying is that the, the debt ceiling issue will probably get, uh, probably relatively painlessly get resolved at some point. There'll be some turmoil in some places that you don't really need to worry about, you know, like treasury bills and repo and things like that. 
that will you know eventually get sorted out too and that contributes negatively to the overall monetary picture which is already um, pretty solidly and so solidly turning toward the deflationary uh, direction anyway so it just adds another another deflationary weight on top of all the rest which is why we keep seeing these these debt ceiling uh, these debt ceiling events show up when they do which is in these transition phase from one to the other so out of inflation into deflation the debt ceiling is just another one of the another factor on top of that got it okay yeah i mean that's simple enough it's something we've seen every every uh every year every couple of years it shows you know it's 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 a regular occurrence and it usually plays out the pretty much the same way yes um so what without telling us of course what you guys are doing within alhambra and so on for your investors um what is how do you you know you don't know the future but how do thing how do you see things shaking out into q4 um i'm keeping it short range as opposed to hey over the next five years a lot can play into that but how do you see things playing out with the fed taper that we talked about the inflation being transitory as you had discussed um the the issues with china the temporary supply crunch and all that stuff uh, I don't know what's going on in the repo market. That's a whole separate discussion. But what do you see as the one, two, or three maybe uh, most likely scenarios going into the end of the year uh, in order for investors or traders to kind of help position themselves based on what unfolds uh, coming coming in the next you know couple months? What do you think? Well, if you're talking about macro big picture stuff, I think the scenarios tend to be that we continue to transition, roll over, you know, global growth continues to get weaker. And in some senses, it, uh, it starts to become more obvious and more people become aware of the fact that the, the fundamental background economic picture is not inflationary. That starts to seep out more and more as the rest of this year goes on. We might see some downside risks from continued, you know, uh, continued um, reactions to pandemics, you know, these things that don't help that we you know localize regional shutdowns in various places around the world those are those continue to drag a little bit from uh, potentially in short run periods i mean that that could happen as well uh, but by and large which is i think what we're looking at is that fourth quarter of, of this year starts to pull the mask away for you know pardon the pun from what the economy is really like because we get further and further away from the major disruptions in the supply chain as well as the Treasury Department's influence through, you know, its helicopter drops. Now we're starting to see what things are really like fundamentally. If you start to see, for example, commodity prices come down a little bit further, they don't have to crash, they don't have to whatever. I mean, the fact that they're not going up anymore is already a, a is already a, a potential uh, transition and reflation uh, transition out of reflation. So commodity prices might pull back a little bit more. Uh, inflation indices are going to continue to 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 soften, if not reverse. I mean, we saw import. The import price index was actually negative for the month of August already. So as these these kinds of trends continue, the fourth quarter I think starts to get people talking about, all right, are we repeating the mistakes we all made in 2018? And that becomes a more serious part of the conversation. At the same time, I do believe the Federal Reserve will taper its QE. Again, I don't think that matters, but it does matter certainly for the Wall Street Journal. It does matter in the stock market and places like that. So you have, again, this disconnect where the Fed is saying things are getting better, but actually underneath, they probably aren't getting better. And we're left with, again, that 2018 type of 
confusion and volatility that I think lingers into 20, uh, 2022. Interesting. So uh, the the old adage, act the part until hopefully it happens one day is our entire um, fiscal and monetary policy is what it is. Just pretend things are great. Throw it out there and hope, and then if we, if we tell everything, if we tell everybody that it worked, maybe they'll believe it. That's really yeah. what it is. That's basically the story of 20 years of QE. We'll just do it over and over again and tell everybody it works really well and hope they don't ask, well, if it works really well, why do you keep doing it? Right. So I really, really uh, always appreciate having you on. Of course, I want to ask you, uh, when do you actually write everything that you know into a book that we can read and reread so we can gain some of this uh, some of this knowledge you're, you're always spewing out? I, I want to make sure I leave everybody with a way to follow uh, Jeff Snyder. Of course, uh, you can reach out to him at Alhambra Investment Partners at alhambrainvestments.com. Uh, Jeff has a very active Twitter stream strongly recommend you follow. You can find him at twitter.com forward slash Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. And then he's also on LinkedIn, just do a search. And then we created a shortener for the YouTube channel, which I find interesting as well. I'm subscribed and I have alerts turned on for go to ct.pro forward slash Alhambra. I strongly appreciate you coming on. We have quite a few questions, but we don't have time. Are, are you, is it too much for you to have people reach out to you on Twitter um, to ask you these questions that maybe you can accumulate into uh, a post or something that you can uh, put out? Or how do we address these questions that are lingering? We got questions through YouTube as well as here. Uh, it, how would you like to handle that? Yeah, I, I don't use Twitter all that much, and I certainly don't interact with it the way I really should interact with people. So, you know, reaching out to me on Twitter probably won't do any good because I don't pay as much attention to it as I should. Um, so, I you know, I don't I, I would love to answer as many questions as I can. I just don't know what the best form or venue would be. Okay, we've had you on uh, after the repo uh, show. We had a crazy number of questions. We had you come on and address those. I'm not sure if we can do this here, but I will keep checking in with you. Hopefully later in the year, we can have you back on to talk about what we discussed today and how things are unfolding and where we are at that point. Hopefully you'll accept that invitation. I, I really appreciate you coming on and thanks everybody for attending and uh, have, a, have a great day. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon, Jeff. All right, thanks. Take care.